there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. And welcome to Bots of the People. On this episode, we have a conversation with Senator Tammy Duckworth. I got to say this. I, I love the, the Parkland students, the Florida students who really put this together. But you know what? The students on the south side of Chicago have been getting shot at and killed on a daily basis. And no one is listening to their stories. And no one is, is, is listening on a national basis. And they live and die in with the world ignoring their very existence. And then the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as always. Now, the March for Our Lives just happened this past weekend, and it was incredible to see so many young people out in the streets. Uh, there's been a conversation about race and, and the way that these young people were received, which is very different than the way that black organizers have been received uh, over the past three, four years, which is no fault of these young people. They've been doing an incredible job and have used their platform and privilege to call out uh, the different way that people have been received because of race. You know, I think about one of the students even noted that 25% of the school where the last shooting happened was people of color. And like, you wouldn't know that from the news coverage. Now, one of my takeaways from seeing all the young people this weekend and thinking about the past four years is to just think about like how powerful it is that a generation has been activated in this way, that there's so many young people over the past four years that are just, they understand their power in ways they didn't before, which is incredible. Now, we've mobilized people. The question is, can we organize them? So many people invest a lot of energy into information, and it's important that people have information about injustice, that people have information about what could be. And we also need to equip people with skills, right? The best organizers help other people build their skills to pair with information so they can make an impact. So we know it's not just enough to be able to talk about the carceral state. It's not just enough to be able to name the issue that part of how you change it is you have the skills to actually press the system. You have the skills to get other people on board. You have the skills to think about solutions. You have the skills to tell stories and communicate big ideas and complex ideas simply that those are the skill conversations. So I'm hopeful that all of the teachers, that the adults who help mobilize these young people are also going back and trying to think about what skills they want to develop with them. Here we go. And now the news with me, Brittany, education professional, former member of the Ferguson Commission and the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, Samuel Sinyangwe, a resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, a resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y. Clint, I'm going to let go of the... Um... I, I just for this episode. You're welcome. So this Sunday, uh, I went and saw In the Heights, which is Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, first, I believe it's his, the first play that he wrote for Broadway. It's the one that he wrote right before Hamilton. For transparency, I've not yet seen Hamilton. I'm hoping to, although I am currently number 76,215 in line. Tickets went on sale for DC at 8 a.m. And I think I logged on at 812 and clearly, you know, 76,214 people were, you know, ahead of the game and more on point than I was. So I am uh, pretty Get far back in line. 
you know, but I have hope uh, because I really do want to see Hamilton. I feel like I've seen it because I've listened to the, the soundtrack so many times, but uh, I had not listened to the soundtrack in the Heights and in the Heights was super dope. And like, you know, Hamilton gets all the shine, but in the Heights was amazing um, about like a, a black and brown community in Washington Heights. And uh, it had me wanting to like bachata in the aisle. I was feeling it like my knees were like moving in all sorts of new ways. It was, uh, I was here for it. It was a beautifully done. It was amazing, amazing musical. Um, and you can definitely like see the, where Hamilton emerged from because it's very similar in terms of its, uh, in terms of its sound, in terms of its sort of thematic underpinning of like immigration and, um, you know, what it means to like be an immigrant or be black or brown in America. But shout out to Lin-Manuel. It was dope. And I'm hopeful that 76,000 people will, move quickly so that I can get my tickets for DC. Well, I just want to say, you know, don't feel badly because I didn't even know that the tickets for DC went on sale today. And I've been trying to see Hamilton for forever. So, you know, if anyone, if any friends at the pod want to take me, I will not turn you down. Um, but I, you, like you and 76,000 other people and however many thousands of people are behind you in line, we're all more on it than me. I need to get it together. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, the tickets are so expensive. I like I'm in New York and I still haven't seen Hamilton and you know I run into people that have seen it and I'm just like wow like one day I can only hope to see Hamilton I know they have like the lottery process where you like go in during the day and you you enter a lottery to get a free ticket What? Uh, I'd love to see like the the statistics on that like what the likelihood are to actually get it but um, (laughs) I'm gonna have to start doing that that's like my only path to Hamilton it's like what's more likely Hamilton ticket or the Powerball (laughs) <laughs> the seats are like front row, like literally right in front of the stage, the lottery tickets. Uh, so it's great that you see it. It's just, it's also like very, very close. I went to Hamilton uh, yesterday and it was great. And I, you know, I hadn't really listened to the soundtrack before. Teray, my sister, and my niece and nephew both, uh, or like all three of them, they know it. But I just, it was like weird listening to a soundtrack of a, a play that I hadn't seen. Like that seemed weird. So I've only ever heard it in their presence. But uh, you know, I saw it and I'm like obsessed. I've been listening to I've been listening to it like all night because I'm like, oh, my, this is jams. I didn't even know there's a Hamilton mixtape where they have like celebrities singing some of the Yo, songs. Oh, it's so good. But they it's don't have so I will say they don't have um, George Washington singing in the room, like uh, in the room where it happens. That's on the mixtape. And like that live, I think that on the soundtrack you actually don't get to fully appreciate how they weave the song into the play like it's sort of just like one song on the soundtrack but like in the play it's actually it lives much longer than one song but it was great it was like a 10 out of 10 out of 10 like loved it hope more people it's color everything they say it. it was i didn't even know i didn't know he did in the heights so i need to see that too Clint. i didn't know until you said that like i feel like i this might be the first thing I've ever seen on Broadway. It's so funny because when someone when someone breaks like as big as Hamilton did, you think that they came out of nowhere and like, you know, he had an entire body of work before this. In the Heights is really amazing. Lynn, if you are listening, please hook us up. Be you'll be the yeah. best friend of the pod. Can we Let's get all a kick pod it. Save the Hamilton or Pod, pod Save, save the, play, the Hamilton. Something. I'm here for that. <laughs> I love it. So this Sunday, the New York Times editorial uh, brought up some important research and and data on uh, juvenile life without parole. Uh, And it's made folks know that that, this is an area that I think a lot about and I'm spending a lot of time researching. And and so what we know is that we have uh, upwards of 160,000 to 200,000 people who are currently sentenced to life in prison. 
Um, and we also have a significant population of juveniles who were sentenced to uh, life in prison and life without parole, right? So the U.S. is the only country in the world that sentences children to life without the possibility of parole, the only country in the world. Uh, and one of the studies that the New York Times editorial board brought up um, is a recent study of juvenile transfers to adult courts, uh, which found that black juveniles were nearly two and a half times as likely as white juveniles to be tried as adults, even when controlling for factors like prior records and the seriousness of offense. Uh, and I think that's a really important study that to some people might feel intuitive, but is also reflective of uh, how central race is to sentencing and to the decision to sentence a child as an adult or to sentence a child as a child. The idea of life sentences brings up a much broader uh, and important conversation about how long should we be keeping people in prison, even when all of the research and data, you know, out on the front end, we know that uh, people's brains are not fully developed until they're in their mid-20s. Uh, that's what this sort of recent neuroscience is showing us. And then uh, according to the Marshall Project, the, since 1990, the prison population over the age of 55 uh, has increased by 550 uh, percent. And that's to a, a little bit over 144,000 people in prison. And, and that's in part because of this aging prison population that the, the state and federal prison systems now spend over $4 billion annually on healthcare, and and what we also know is that after age thirty, the likelihood of people committing, you know, quote unquote, violent crimes drops precipitously. Uh, and so I say all this to say that it is important for us to continue to ask ourselves whether or not we should be a country that is putting children in a cage and telling them that they will have no opportunity to get out, and how we can think differently about the role of our parole boards um, so that they are operating with more transparency and that. Uh, you have people for whom there is some sort of incentive to release people who do not represent a threat to uh, to public safety, uh, because currently there's no incentive for the parole boards to ever release anyone because all it takes is one person to be released and to commit a violent crime for for them to sort of experience a, a lot of backlash and retrenchment. So two things this made me think of, Clint. One, you know, given that recent Supreme Court decision that effectively ruled that sentencing juveniles to life without parole was unconstitutional and that they should at least have an opportunity for a parole hearing um, made me think a lot about who are the parole board members, how are those decisions being made. And, and I think in looking not only at New York state parole board, but also parole boards across the country, uh, more often than not, you know, these are folks who are appointed by the governor uh, or the state legislature, and they are former law enforcement, former corrections. They are people who are often prosecutors, former prosecutors. So people who are not really on the um, you know, criminal justice reform side of things, but rather on the more aggressive uh, lock people up side of things. And, and I think that uh, influences the likelihood that, that somebody will ultimately get parole during those hearings. And I think we have to think differently about like, what does it mean to, to be making the decisions? What types of people do we actually want uh, to be in positions to effectively rule on whether somebody uh, should be released? Uh, and I think the second piece around people who are, you know, older than 55 and the population that is incarcerated aging, you know, when we look at the research, it's clear that you know, we, if we released everybody over 55 from prison tomorrow, like there wouldn't be a significant increase in crime. And the question is, like, how do we as a society get past this idea that if one person who is released commits a crime again, uh, like anybody else who's in society, that suddenly that reflects on the entire prison population and their uh, likelihood and future chances of ever being released. Uh, and like we have to get past this like Willie Horton mentality and this this mentality where 
um, everybody is being judged because of like one uh, isolated event. And rather, we're thinking about what what's good for the system as a whole and for society as a whole. Yeah. And this is another moment to think about the fact that criminal justice and criminal justice reform in this country cannot be treated as isolated work. It is directly related to other injustices that young people experience every day. So um, if you haven't taken a look at the sentencing project, they do incredible work and release really thoughtful reports on how criminal justice affects Americans and people all over the world. Um, But in 2012, they released uh, findings from a survey about young people sentenced to life in prison as juveniles and found the following. 79% of them witnessed violence in their homes regularly. 32% grew up in public housing. 40% had been enrolled in special education classes. Fewer than half were attending school at the time of their offense. 47% experienced physical abuse. And 80% of the girls reported histories of physical abuse. And 77% of girls reported histories of sexual abuse. So all of these things are interrelated and correlated in ways that require us to think about criminal justice reform, not just about how we sentence people, how we jail people and the treatment that they receive when they're inside um, and how they're uh, rehabilitated on the outside. It is about creating healthy communities from the very beginning so that we actually don't end up in these circumstances. So Sam, echo about like the composition of parole boards. I think that's fascinating. I think that when people think about appointments uh, to boards, like parole board is, is rarely where they look, but you're right that the majority of those people have had some sort of relationship to the system, like working in the system, and it's not clear that they're actually the best arbiters. Uh, Clint, I, you, you spend a lot of time studying this, and I'm always interested in the way that we talk about the victim's role in the criminal justice system, and and it's I think it's a sensitive topic. In some ways, society is the victim of these crimes, and like we should start thinking about parole boards and other of these structures in like a more holistic way. And I I think that there's a tendency, especially during the parole proceedings, to take into account really heavily how the victim feels about the release and not necessarily the same with like what the impact on a larger society might be. And I say this because I've talked to a set of correction officers in different cities across the country. And one of the things that they've said that I never considered is they were like, we would actually like to be a part of the proceeding because like we know how they've been in prison and jail. And like, you know, I talked to this one at a very large prison in the country and she was just like, if we go to the hearings and we're often like, they're fine in here, like not a big deal. But she's like, we're not really a part of the process in a way that people think that we are. And we don't have much leverage in releases. And I thought that was really interesting. The last thing I was saying is I think we've heard of like truth and sentencing laws, these laws that passed that essentially said that like, you got to serve your sentence as a part of that package. I didn't know that Virginia and maybe y'all knew this, but Virginia ended parole in 1995. I had no clue. No more. There's no parole in Virginia. So for people who have been sentenced since then, they just have to serve their full term uh, minus good time credits, which is sort of wild. I like had, I'd never imagined that like there just isn't parole in some places. And they have sort of a clause around older people. So like older people can they have to get reviewed essentially by the parole board. But like straight up parole doesn't exist. And what is even crazier about Virginia is that there was a time period where the courts weren't even telling juries that parole had ended. So juries were sentencing people to essentially like permanent life sentences without the possibility of parole. But they didn't know they were sentencing them to life sentences without the possibility of parole. And that there was actually an effort to change the law to like inform, like to make judges tell juries. uh, And it didn't pass. So Uh, that is just like another way that people are like trapped by the system and don't even know the rules. Like they're playing a different game. So my piece of news is a new study uh, that was profiled in the New York Times last week, which is about the income gap between uh, black and white boys. And 
this study looked at, it's incredible because they looked at 20 million children, the data on 20 million children, uh, and followed them through life from uh, birth around the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, all the way into adulthood to answer the question of uh, whether or not and and to what degree black boys and and white boys and indeed a a range of different demographic groups uh, differed uh, depending on where they started from and how they finished uh, by race and gender. Uh, And so, you know, what they found was that for white kids who grew up rich, the majority of them ended up as adults uh, living rich, right? So they they grew up rich, they ended up as rich adults, uh, rich or upper middle class, the majority. For black boys, it was the opposite. For the majority of black boys who grew up rich, they ended up either uh, poor or middle class, uh, with with the the largest distribution actually being uh, poor and lower middle class. Uh, and so they control for a range of other factors here. They control for uh, family structure. They control for uh, the amount of income and wealth of the parents. They control for education levels uh, and a range of other things. And and it really is shocking because they found in 99%, 99% of cases, uh, black boys with the same starting place as, as white boys ended up uh, earning less as adults, 99% of cases. And the only 1% uh, where there was rough equity or, or equality between the two were in census tracts that had low poverty rates, uh, less racial discrimination, uh, and a higher distribution of black fathers in the community. So not just uh, like your own father, but uh, fathers in general uh, that were present in the community. And so you know, this is fascinating because it adds to a, an existing body of, re- of research, not only on the income gap, but on the wealth gap. Uh, that shows that that indeed there that class uh, and as we as we think of class in America uh, is not, is something that is so heavily structured by race uh, to to such a degree that you know ninety nine percent of cases people born into this effectively into the same economic class actually uh, end up in completely different places because of race uh, and so you know I bring this I bring this up because I think you know it's important when we talk about solutions to number one we have to keep acknowledging the role that race plays uh, race and gender and also thinking about, you know, we can't solve this strictly by looking at class-based or or income-based approaches, universalist approaches, when in fact, uh, many of these inequities are race-based in nature. I just want to reemphasize this point that Sam made. Do not ever let anyone offer you an economic justice framework that is devoid of race. Race and class are inextricably linked in this country, and anyone who is willing to talk about one and not the other is only providing half a solution. The same goes for the inverse, um, but it is critically important that we, uh, because people we're so afraid of race as a country, we're so afraid to talk about it, so afraid to grapple with it, it's really important that we do not let people s- skirt their responsibility to uh, ensure that that is part of the conversation. You know, it's interesting because the more I have contemplated this this study and the more I've read different reactions to it, I'm worried about some of the conclusions that people can draw from it. Not because it's not important to share what what has been shared through it, uh, as again, it is a reminder of just how inextricably linked race and class are. But there are some pieces in there around the the why that I think could lead to some potentially troubling conclusions. And I was reminded of the Moynihan report, this report that came out mid-century. And, you know, 
basically attributed like the ills of the black community to these supposed moral failings. And one of the largest moral failings was the lack of fathers in the home. And we see similar language here. Uh, and I think it's important that we understand the difference between causation and correlation, especially when you consider that no matter the socioeconomic class of your upbringing for black men, um, they are still highly likely to be incarcerated, highly likely to live in poverty or to live at a socioeconomic class less than the one that they grew up in. And so if those things have been happening over generations, of course, we continue to see the cyclical effects of that in our communities. Um, but it is not some kind of moral failing or um, moral ineptitude that has caused this. So I just think it's really important to pull out those nuances and to be very careful about how we discuss this. I think it's also important to make sure that we don't erase the conversation about Black women in this, because, of course, the report shares that Black women and white women who grow up in similar circumstances end up in similar income levels. However, Everybody, white women, black women, black men, we are all doing poorly uh, as measured against the absolute high, which currently right now is white men. Uh, and so I've seen some people say this is uniquely a problem of black men. And while there are unique problems of black men that are exposed in this study, it's just really important that we have a holistic conversation. Yeah. And I think that last point you bring up, Britt, is really important. Like, I think it is fully possible for us to recognize that black boys and black men in this country experience a unique and and sort of idiosyncratic set of obstacles um, that are distinct to the experience of what it means to grow up and navigate the world as a black boy or man in this country, and that it is fully possible for that to be true and for that then not to make us sort of fall into the trap of thinking that black girls and women do not experience their own idiosyncratic and unique set of of struggles and difficulties, right, that we have outlined time and time again on this podcast, right? I mean, the thing that comes to mind that we've talked about most recently is obviously uh, how much more likely black women are to experience difficulties and uh, in childbirth than um, and pregnancy as compared to their white counterparts. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? The sort of the unique specificities with regard to what it means to grow up as a black girl and, and to become a black woman in this country are are very real. And what we can't do is let this study be used in a way to suggest that black women are not experiencing their own sets of difficulties or that that black women have it easier than black men. Like, I think that that I think that 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 would be the wrong takeaway uh, from this study. And I think you bring you and sort of invoking the Moynihan report is really important because I think the Moynihan report is fascinating because it's, it's, it's interesting because the Moynihan report itself is actually a much more comprehensive document uh, if you have the opportunity to read it than the sort of way that it has been historically spun. It was spun at that moment in a sort of contemporary context in in the media uh, when Moynihan, you know, came out with it. But since has been sort of, I won't say misrepresented, but it talked a lot about structural inequities that created what, you know, Moynihan believed to be the cultural pathology, which is, you know, obviously a problematic notion, but but it was also like a fundamentally sexist document, right? Suggesting that uh, black women uh, and black mothers were responsible for creating and allowing this sort of culture of uh, poverty and this pathological ecosystem in their homes and in their communities to sort of fester. And and that is obviously not uh, not the case. And, and I think that it is important that we don't let, as Ibram Kendi, who was cited in the report, 
Um, and in the, the New York Times report on the study, he talked about how we can't let this become the 21st century iteration of the Moynihan report. You know, I think a lot of people confuse this as a wealth gap study. It's not a wealth gap study. It's an income study. That's still important. Uh, Brittany, your comment and Sam and everybody's comment makes me think about the way people talk about gender and police violence, too, that like people would say to us, like, why are you only focusing on the deaths of black men? And it's like, well, we're not only focusing on the deaths of black men. The reality is that black men are just killed disproportionately. And what is real is that only a fraction of any of them ever rise to the national conversation. It's one of the things that made Sandra Bland's death like really important is that it was one of the first uh, women who who was killed in police custody that just like made the national conversation. Now, what is true is that it's about the question we ask. So when we ask the question of police violence that results in death, that is just heavily men. When you ask the question of police violence that doesn't result in death, like it is it is like the results are just different. So if you ask about police violence that is like sexual assault, when you think about verbal, so like so, so it makes me think of like what are the questions that we're asking? When I think about this study, it's like we, it was asking a set of questions. But when you dig deeper and you think about even the findings around the income gap with regard to white women and, and black women, it's like, well, OK, so the study sort of concluded that the that there's not much of a gap between the two. The question becomes like, what is the gap between women and men? And it's like, well, the gap is still huge and still race, right? And like, it's a function of what are the questions. So when I think about like some of the questions that the people put the charts together, which I don't know if it was a function of the study or the people put the charts together for the New York Times, is that there wasn't one comparison with like all the genders and income, which I think actually would have showed the race and gender gap in a way that made much more sense to people. And I do think some people walked away being like, oh, women are fine. There's no income gap between white women and black women. And you're like, white women and black women aren't the only people in the workplace. Like, it's sort of weird that you're only comparing them to each other. It made sense. I get why they did it in the study, but in the larger conversation, like, I think that that was a missed opportunity. So mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see, like, how this changes the way we think about solutions. I think what was frightening, and Sam, we've talked about this offline, is that one of the sort of scary things about the study is that it shows that, like, we don't know how to have income travel generations with black people, like, haven't figured it out. And the only thing that I can think of is, like, will we make the same investments in communities of color as we have in white communities? Because that's really, like, racism and slavery and all that stuff aside, which is, like, a big aside, is that, like, literally, we just never invested in communities of color in the way we've invested in white communities, like, over centuries. And, like, barring that, you can call it reparations, call it whatever you want to call it. But barring that, I don't know how we actually correct this across generations. So um, on a totally different note, y'all know I love gospel music. I grew up on it. But I'm a little afraid of going to gospel concerts now because I may run into the Koch brothers. And I know what you're thinking. Girl, what? The Koch brothers? Yes, the Koch brothers. So uh, I was recently reading an article in Mother Jones. uh, And I was learning about the fact that the Koch brothers helped found an organization called Reaching America based on the idea that fossil fuel and energy companies can appeal to communities of color by selling their work as lowering energy costs. So they did so at a gospel concert in Richmond, Virginia, not too long long ago. And in between the music, they hosted panels and even gave away prizes to cover energy costs for a year. What they weren't so vocal about is that they were working at the same time to put through the Atlantic Coast Pipeline that would have run from West Virginia to North Carolina, which a number of local black pastors knew would cost their environment and their community far more than residents would save in temporarily lowered energy bills. So one of the partners for this event uh, is a black conservative named Derek Holly, who 
has been the purveyor of this idea of, quote, energy poverty. And on its face, that sounds like it highlights the ways in which environmental racism and classism affect people living in low-income circumstances. But unfortunately, that couldn't be further from the truth. According to Kenya Downs, the reporter who wrote this story, she said that uh, Holly has invoked the phrase while speaking in support of fracking in Maryland, Rick Perry's appointment to lead the Department of Energy, and most recently, the Trump administration's planned withdrawal from the Paris Accord. Uh, So this really brings two things to mind. One, everything that sounds good isn't good. This guy, Derek Holly, reminds me a bit of Killmonger because everything in my life right now is a Black Panther reference. But basically, the idea is that his analysis of strife wasn't altogether wrong. There are debilitating costs of everyday bills, including energy bills, that are difficult for communities of color and and low-income communities to sustain. But he's offering a tactical solution that will ultimately harm his own people. Um, Fracking is not good for the environment. (laughs) These oil pipelines are not good for the environment. Uh, And as much as you can offer people savings right now, uh, it will cost us in the long run. The other thing that it brings to mind is that old quote that in politics, there are no permanent friends, only permanent interests. Of course, the Koch brothers were famously a part of President Obama's bipartisan criminal justice reform coalition. And I know that there are lots of questions floating out there as to how genuine their participation was. But in the end, this particular story right here is a reminder that people you once worked with may not always be on your side. And to be clear, the Koch brothers have a far longer track record of working against us than for us. So this is a standard that we should always keep in mind. Uh, And remember that just because someone showed up as our ally once doesn't mean that they're always for our team. So this is interesting because there's an article a few months ago about a Koch-funded organization in Florida called the Libre Institute that is seeking out uh, newly resettled Puerto Ricans in Central Florida, Tampa, and Miami, fleeing the the devastation from Hurricane Maria uh, in Central Florida and Tampa and Miami. And they're offering uh, what they call English language classes and also civics courses, uh, where they are teaching what they call self-reliance and the principles that make America great. And so you know, the more that that you look into the Koch brothers and what they're doing, it appears that they fund organizations all across the country that are intentionally trying to spread propaganda and recruit, in the case of what you said, Brittany, you know, black folks at the black church, recruit Puerto Ricans in Florida who are newly resettled. uh, And, you know, these are things that are that are all happening. They have so much money, right, that's going into this. And, it, and it's a question of, number one, how do we expose what's happening? And so that's why I'm grateful for, for this reporting. But number two, it's a reminder that people with, with a lot of money will uh, find ways uh, to sort of infiltrate communities and try to recruit people to, to actually be part of, of creating problems and making them worse. Uh, and so like, how do we actually make sure that, that we're making communities aware uh, of, you know, who's funding these organizations and also that we're, we are, you know, just as present and just as invested uh, and actually more so than, than the opposition is, because I can tell you, you know, in Florida, there's been a lot of efforts made by, you know, governor Rick Scott and by, you know, folks on the, on the right and, and right wing uh, to sort of appeal to newly resettled Puerto Ricans with the intention of trying to win their votes. And, you know, a lot of a lot of folks on the left have uh, not been uh, as as involved or or organized uh, or well funded uh, to to do those efforts. And so, you know, we have to be involved in every community and making sure that that we're able to counter this influence, which is trying to sort of uh, recruit people uh, for for the wrong things. 
Yeah, and I just think it's important to to remember that the issue of climate change is a racial justice issue, and and not just in a domestic context, but in a global context, right? Like the, the what all of the the myriad of different issues that stem from climate change, whether it be flooding in Nigeria or mudslides in Sierra Leone or uh, hurricanes in Haiti and Puerto Rico or or people in Sudan, right, who who have to flee their homes from conflicts that are largely centered on climate related forced migration. I think we don't always put together the way that climate change is impacting the global south and subsequently the way that immigration patterns from the global south are leading largely people of color to Europe and to the United States and to parts of the western world that are largely, you know, we can't forget largely responsible for creating the the unstable economic and political conditions in the countries from which these people are leaving in the first place. So, my news is about Wisconsin. So, the governor of Wisconsin, uh the wonderful Scott Walker, I'm being sarcastic. Scott Walker has only done things that are not helpful to people. He lost a court battle about holding a special election that there are two legislative districts that have been vacant for months. And he doesn't want to hold an election. And there's the thought that he thinks that there will be people who are elected who will not be favorable to him or the party. So it got taken to court. He lost. And instead of holding the election, what they are trying to do is actually change the law. So his attorneys had argued that the election law did not require him to fill the seats because they were made vacant during an off year. Both legislators who occupied the seats quit to take jobs in Walker's administration. The judge said that didn't make sense. And the people that sued him, which he is definitely annoyed by, is a National Democratic Redistricting Trust. So I think this is just another uh, reminder that uh, a lot of folks in the Republican Party actually don't believe in democracy or at least uh, might believe it in principle, but their actions don't match their words. Whether it's voter suppression or gerrymandering or now uh, this case in Wisconsin, uh, it is scary and, and something that doesn't bode well for, for the future of this country. Because if, if only one uh, of the two major parties actually believes in uh, playing by the rules, uh, then number one, that puts Democrats at a disadvantage, right? And it creates an incentive not to play by the rules uh, in order to catch up. But number two, it still erodes democracy because uh, in states that are Republican controlled, you know, they will continue to go on this path. Uh, and even in states that aren't Republican controlled, Republicans often have uh, enough power, even even as a minority party, to to block legislation from passing, uh, to prevent Supreme Court justices from being appointed, uh, like Merrick Garland, even when they don't control the presidency, right? And so, you know, I'm I'm worried about you know where this goes and and how this actually affects uh, the system moving forward, uh, because it, 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 when you don't have two functioning political parties or two political parties that that play by the same rules, uh, you don't have a functioning democracy. And these rules really matter. And, and to your point, Sam, we can't just talk about how the Republicans are leveraging these rules at the federal level. What is happening in state houses and in governor's mansions really, really matters. We cannot forget that Scott Walker has been providing the Republicans a playbook for how to play by completely different rules at the state level for a number of years. He's been attacking collective bargaining for as long as I can remember. And he most recently took his fight to the University of Wisconsin system system. 
The University Board of Regents is now almost exclusively made up of appointees from Governor Walker. Um, Almost all regions actually are there to serve seven-year terms. And this is the same Board of Regents that has taken on tenure at the university, that has taken on collective bargaining rights within the university system, and that also has proposed to punish students for protest activity, that happening, of course, right after more progressive protests started to take over the campus. Uh, And so this is really sinister work. This is incredibly subversive action that moves in every single direction through the courts, through the state legislature, through the state university system and other ways to make sure that the rules that they're trying to play by are actually applicable everywhere and not just one place. We have to pay very, very, very careful attention. Scott Walker is a star within the party. Uh, And like I said, he's really providing people a blueprint as to how to be on attack uh, in more ways than one. Yeah, I think it it just becomes increasingly clear every day that uh, Republicans recognize that they are under an existential threat, that the demographic that makes up the majority of their party, which are which is becoming increasingly homogenous with white people, uh, is a shrinking demographic in this country. Um, and obviously, we know and we've talked about how the lines of whiteness move and shift over time. So, so that's important to keep in mind as a sort of parenthetical in this conversation. But, but it is clear that they see themselves becoming largely outnumbered, uh, and that they are taking on a uh, whatever a sort of by any means necessary framework with regard to deciding to hold or not hold elections, deciding to abide by or not abide by certain rules or court rulings, uh, deciding, you know, attempting to continue to gerrymander different districts on a state and local level across the country. And I think that part of what this just makes me think of and part of what I've been reflecting on really just over the last year is, is I think what Trump has done, among many things, is is really illuminate how democracy, like a functioning democracy, largely operates because you have a collection of people who have all bought in to a certain set of norms that are like not actually or technically etched in any sort of legal stone, but but that we have, it's sort of implicit within the social contract of what it means to be American is that we are all uh, supposed to have bought into like operating within the framework of democracy in a certain way. And what the, I think the last year has demonstrated both through Trump, but also I think to some people's surprise and to, not to other people's surprises, how many Republicans are willing to throw those norms out of the way when they mm-hmm. see themselves as under, as, as existing under this existential threat in order to continue to maintain power. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. 
Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. And here's my conversation with Senator Tammy Duckworth, one of the two senators from Illinois. Uh, Senator Duckworth, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you. It's great to finally be on. <laughs> you have done so many firsts. Uh, first Asian-American woman in Congress, first Thai-born U.S. citizen in Congress, and now first senator to give birth while in office. Now, when, when I think about being in Congress, it seems so wild on the outside. Is it as wild on the inside as it looks like it is? 
boy, there are days when it does get pretty crazy <laughs> and it can be pretty tedious. But then there are days when you know that you are part of something so much bigger than yourself. Like, you know, uh, we had the sit-in with the great civil rights legend John Lewis over uh, – universal background checks and getting some some gun control legislation passed. And we did that uh, just a couple of years ago. And to be doing a protest with John Lewis was the most amazing thing to be able to participate in. Now, you brought up the issue of gun control. You you obviously know the, the march that just happened and all the incredible young people in Parkland and uh, in Chicago and cities across the country that have stood up uh, advocating for more gun control. What's your take on this issue? And like, what do you think the path to gun control should be either at the national level or at the state level? Like most Americans, over 95 percent of Americans support universal background checks. There needs to be sensible gun legislation. Uh, and there certainly is absolutely no need for things like assault weapons to be on the streets of this country. And in fact, the firearm that uh, most troops carry into battle uh, for the military is not fully automatic. So why would we have things for sale on the streets of, of our nation that allow people to convert weapons into fully automatic when we don't even do that for, our, you know, the, the individual sidearms that our troops carry into battle? Now, that makes a lot of sense. It's also interesting to think about uh, this push for more police officers in schools, or we've seen that that has just led to more arrests for for kids. Uh, since officers have been in schools in record numbers, we've arrested over a million kids in the country. What, what's your take on school resource officers? Well, I don't think that the school resource officers are the solution. I think uh, there's a place for them. But, um, you know, I, I, I got to say this. I, I love the, the Parkland students, the Florida students who really put this together. But you know what? The students on the south side of Chicago have been getting shot at and killed on a daily basis, and no one is listening to their stories, and no one is, is, is listening on a national basis, and they live and die in with the world ignoring their very existence. Um, and, and all the school resource officers in the world is not making that difference, and, and so we have to take this fight to every corner of this country. And, and I don't know that more school resource officers is, is the solution, but, but getting rid of, you know, straw purchasers and, 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 and just how easy it is to get guns is, is a good first step. Now, can we also talk about net neutrality? I met with Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, right before the vote, uh, and we met, had Mignon on the podcast, uh, Mignon Kleinburn, FCC commissioner, uh, talked to Tom Wheeler, and it seems like there's a consensus on the left that net neutrality is a good thing. You talk to people like Ajit, and he sort of thinks that it's unnecessary regulation of something that already works. Uh, you know that the FCC ended net neutrality at, at their level. Do you think it's going to get through Congress or is all hope lost and we should be fighting a different battle? Like, what's your take on that? Well, I think that there is a chance that we can reinstate uh, legislation that would require net neutrality to happen. I could not disagree with Chairman Pai more. I think that he is working as uh, an arm of industry. Um, and and he's not about making sure that everyone has equal access to the Internet. And let me tell you, there's bipartisan support to keeping net neutrality. I think it is more of a progressive Democratic issue. But I was in Peoria, Illinois at a farm bureau when some farmers stood up and we were talking about corn and soybean prices. And one of them stood up and said, I want to know more about this net neutrality because my kid goes to a community college and I'm afraid his community college is not going to have the same access. And that's the only place where he can get access. And and so people are worried all across the country. This is about fundamental fairness and access to what I consider to be a utility, not a privilege. 
And how do you describe net neutrality to people who are like, I don't know what that is. Like, it sounds sort of wonky. Like, what, what have you found to be effective to, like, help people understand the issue better? Well, it's basically saying that if you have more money, you can pay for faster access. And uh, I'm not I'm not uh, endorsing any particular company right now, but I don't know if you've seen the Burger King commercial on net. It's not a commercial. They did a video on to explain net neutrality. No. It is amazingly uh, um, Can I just uh, Google effective. like Burger King net neutrality? And find it right. So, so what they did is they they just had they did this in one of their stores where um, people would come in and they say, well, we're trying to sell more more chicken sandwiches, and if you want a Whopper, then and you want it sooner, then you have to. And it's going to cost you twenty bucks. But if you're willing to wait for your Whopper, mm. you know, thirty minutes for your Whopper, then it can be the usual price. And then so there were people at the counter saying, what are you talking about? I have to pay twenty bucks extra for my the same Whopper that guy's going to get. And it really illustrated what we're setting up here, the haves and the have-nots. And you can really strangle the access of uh, people who are, you know, don't have the resources to pay for faster access. And what is really unfair about it is that the people with the resources, they can actually strangle so that you get less access. And that is fundamentally un-American. No, I agree with you. And what about ICE? What can we do about immigration? It seems like we teeter-totter between like ICE arresting a ton of people, this conversation about the wall. It seems like a clampdown on, on refugees and, and America being a place where asylum is a real thing. Is there anything that we can do or that, that the Senate can do or Congress can do? Or is this sort of a just like try and wait Trump out? Oh, well, I, I think this is a get rid of this administration and the people he's put in charge of the Department of Homeland Security because— I mean, when this started not just with uh, the current uh, head of Homeland Security, but um, her mentor, who is John Kelly. Um, I asked him when he was the head of DHS, and like, why are you separating mothers and breastfeeding babies and, 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 and young children from one another? And he actually said, well, it's a good deterrent. That's not humanity. That's not American. It's you know, a good a deterrent? That, That's that, what he said? Yes. He said it's a good deterrent. Wow. So if people know that you have your child with you and ICE gets you, they're going to separate. They're going to separate you from your children. Maybe, uh, you know, you 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 you're not come to this country. I, I mean, and and that is continuing to this day. ISIS is continuing to do that, and they're coming in and and, and disguising themselves, wearing shirts that say police. Um, and I asked General Kelly when he was head of DHS, I'm like, you can't just wear a shirt that says police. You're not police. You're immigration. And he said, well, we think we're police, so we're okay wearing it. So I, I think this is a real sea change in the attitude, and it comes right out of the White House. A real deterrent is sort of a wild thing to say. <laughs> well, Yeah. Now, yeah. one to talk about maternity leave and child care in the Senate. I, you know, have no experience with maternity leave or child care. But you've talked about the rules being outdated. What does that mean? Well, there's there's a couple of things. One, I think that we should have universal family leave policy. So what people don't know is that in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, every office has its own policy. And depending on who is the congressman or the senator, the policy is different. In my office, I provide 12 weeks of paid family leave to men or women for um, – Either the birth of a child, the adoption of fostering, or for, for you to go take care of a family member. Wait, every so single can, office has different rules? Every single office has different rules, wow. yes. Who are they approved by? 
Well, they run through the overall administration for the House and for the Senate to make sure that they're okay. But some can have as little as two weeks. And, and then on the high end is my office. And um, I think Marco Rubio, actually, but he's, a, you know, he's got a young family himself. Um, and, and he gets it as well. Um, that provides the 12 weeks. And some of my colleagues um, provide the 12 weeks as well. But most don't provide that much. And, and for me, I make sure that it's available to men or women. And I make sure that it's not just for the birth, uh, adoption, or fostering of a child, but it's also if you need to go take care of a family member, um, then then you should be able to do it. Uh, and then on top of that, the Senate itself does not allow you to bring children onto the floor of the Senate. So if I want to vote, which is what my job is for the people of Illinois and represent my state, um, and I'm breastfeeding or my daughter is you know three months old, I have to leave her somewhere, and I can't. I can't leave her with a staff member because that's she, a federal employee, so there's conflict of interest. But then I can't take her on the floor to vote, but I can't vote unless I'm on the floor. <laughs> there's like actually yeah. a rule that says you cannot bring a kid to the floor. In the Senate, correct. In the House, you can up until they're 12 years old. And I would bring my daughter, if I happen to have her, you know, we had votes at a strange time or we had votes for four or five hours and I was in the middle of breastfeeding, um, you know, uh, I, I could actually bring her onto the floor and vote and and, and and then leave. But in the Senate, you're not allowed to do that. So we're trying to change the rules to allow men or women, the male or female senators, to bring their child onto the floor for the first year of life while you're voting. Now, I wanted to ask you to I want to go back to a conversation about Chicago, since you are the senator from one of the senators from Illinois. Trump talks a lot about Chicago being this like hyper violent place with the that needs more law and order. And, and that's a narrative that the right has used for a long time to fear monger. What's your response to that? Well, I think that he is seeking to divide us. He's seeking to divide us. There are so many wonderful programs and things that are happening in Chicago but at the same time, we have a lot of violence that's and random violence that's happening, and our young people are really the victims of this. Uh, one of the things that's a big problem is that we are a major dumping ground for essentially a, a freeway of illegal um, firearms that are bought in the southern parts of the United States. And people will actually go down south and where, where things are much more lax and fill up the trunks of cars and drive them up to Chicago. And then they just sell them like, you know, candy or CDs out of the back of the trunk. Um, so we have to go after straw purchasers. And we have to provide more programs um, uh, in, you know, uh, that, that reach kids where they need to be. Uh, we don't have to spend the kind of money that we used to, to on things like after-school youth activities, basketball programs, and arts programs, and all of that. So there's more that can be done. We have to invest in our communities. And unfortunately, those investments tend to be tied to um, real estate taxes, which then tie to, you know, you have affluent neighborhoods versus uh, black and brown communities that tend not to be as affluent. And those kids don't get the investments that they should because there's no tax base. So we, we have to treat all of our children equally because we never know who the next person is going to come where they're going to come from. That's going to be the person who's you know who cures cancer, or even just someone who deserves to grow up and have a good life. And there have been rumors that uh, that Trump's going to oust the head of uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs. I know you have had experience with that department. How is that department running in this administration? Is this current secretary uh, like good? Is what's what's the what there? 
Well, there are some real ethical issues with Secretary Shulkin um, with some of his personal spending habits, which seems to be um, uh, a, a common theme, theme among <laughs> all of the Trump yes. appointees, whether it's uh, uh, Mr. Pruitt or, or you know, uh, Ms., uh, Secretary Price, who had to resign because of his excessive spending, um, or Secretary Carson at HUD. Um, but Mr. Shulkin has expressed um, a commitment to keeping VA uh, a federal entity and not privatizing it. I am very concerned with um, the Trump administration's attempts to privatize VA. That is, here you go, veteran. Here's an ID card that says you're a veteran. Now you go out on the streets and try to find your own health care. That sounds like it might be good, but really um, the VA has such expertise in certain areas that you really want the VA to be there. So that um, uh, if, you're, if you're a man in, in, in your 50s and you go and you get treated for at your local physicians and you get treated for fatigue and asthma and some neurological problems, you can't figure out what it is, they'll take care of that. But if that same man goes to the VA, they'll know that that's a Gulf War veteran and he's probably suffering from Gulf War syndrome. But most physicians won't be able to make that diagnosis. So it's important that VA is there um, to provide those very specialized services uh, to our veterans, and um, I would hate to see it privatized, which is why I think the main is the main reason that President Trump and his the right wingers who are trying to push Secretary Shulkin out is because he's resisting their attempts to privatize it. And I also want to ask you about the bank bill, the rolling back some of the bank regulations put in place by the Dodd Frank Act. That uh, people were split inside the party on that. It looks like you voted no. Um, can you talk about that vote and why that was important to you? That was a really tough vote because there were some good things in that bill for community banks and small town banks. Um, A lot of times uh, uh, um, credit unions and banks, small banks, community banks are the only places where small businesses can actually get some capital. And they're being held to the same uh, requirements for capital as, you know, the large mega banks that uh, are the ones who got us into the financial crisis um, uh, in the you know in two thousand seven, um, but what was in the bill that just drove it so that I could not vote for it was the uh, removal of the requirements to track um, discrimination in mortgage loans, um, and it was going to make it easier uh, for banks to provide um, um, very discriminative practices when it comes to to lending to people who are trying to buy a home, and it really would. Um, uh, disproportionately negatively affect African-American communities um, and Latino communities as well. And I just I I couldn't vote for, you know, allowing predatory lending to come back into our black and brown communities. That makes sense. What do you think is happening with the FBI? Like, I know the Senate, you know, votes for the FBI director. There's a lot of upheaval happening in the FBI right now. Do you think that this will or like what's your take on it as somebody who is who you know who who's at the table around voting for confirmation well i think what's happening at the fbi is the president and his allies are purposefully trying to destroy the reputation of the fine men and women who work there uh, these are nonpartisan folks. These are folks who work very hard in law enforcement, 
who are um, devoted to protecting and defending the Constitution of this country and the rule of law. And this president, because he himself and his family and, and, and his allies are under investigation for potential wrongdoing, is trying to undermine the FBI and is trying to discredit the FBI. Um, uh, you know, that's that's what people do when when they've done something wrong. Um, and unfortunately, um, he happens to be president of the United States and he's doing everything that he can to discredit um, the fine reputation that the FBI has had and independent councils have had. Now, as we come to an end, uh, there are a lot of people who are like, I've marched, I've called, I've emailed, I've been to the city council meetings, like I've tried, like I've done it all. And it, and it sort of feels like nothing's changing. Yeah, I couldn't disagree with you more. They are making a huge difference. It started with the Women's March. The Women's March, when the women came out and they marched, they learned to organize and and participate in a movement that hadn't really happened since the civil rights era. And then what happened was, um, not too long after that, the president instituted his Muslim ban, his Muslim travel ban. And all across the country, people spontaneously went to the airports and said, not in my name, not in my country are you going to institute this ban. We had over 30,000 people show up at O'Hare Airport without having to be organized because they just participated in the Women's March and they were used to doing it. And then through the summer, last summer, when they were trying to get rid of Obamacare, um, people spontaneously showed up. I had parents with kids with disabilities camp out for three months Outside my office, I share in a vestibule with Senator Lisa Murkowski from uh, Alaska, and they were there saying, please, please, if you get rid of this health care, you will kill my child. And here's my child. And they were there. And that, I think, was far more powerful an argument for my colleagues who ended up um, voting against their attempts to get rid of uh, the ACA than, than any argument I could have made. And now with this gun legislation piece, I think, um, you know, with, with the Parkland students and all the students and their bravery, they're shaming corporate America into finally abandoning the NRA. You know, an NRA, an organization that is dominated by gun manufacturers who want to make money at the expense of our children's lives, is actually finally feeling the push. So they are making a difference. So I just those folks, you keep showing up, you keep speaking your mind, and if you can, run for office, you know, uh, run for office at every single level. This is the most patriotic American thing you can do is to exercise your right to free speech, and you keep doing it. And one of the questions I ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Um, probably one of the lessons I, I got in the Army, um, which is you don't leave anyone behind. Hmm. You never know when you are going to be the weakest. On the day that I was shot down in my helicopter, I was the highest ranking person uh, in my helicopter. And at the end of the day, I was the weakest person. um, And I was dependent on everyone else for my life. You never know when the tables can change, when the tables can turn. You never know when you may be in a car accident and suddenly now you need the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. You never know that you may end up with a medical diagnosis that was unexpected, and now suddenly you need health care and Medicare and Medicaid. You never know. We don't leave anybody behind in this country. This is not the Serengeti where we leave the weak and the young to the, to the hyenas and, and only the fit run ahead. That's not how America works. We're in this together. We're a better union when we work on it together, and we're better when we're united and diverse. So as we come to a close, uh, I, I think you, I agree with you about noting the incredible activism. I think about myself being in the street in Ferguson and all those incredible young people uh, who who did that, like before there were rallies or cameras and those sort of things. I wanted to ask you, 
to though about your hope about opioids do you think that this administration is going to come forward with a plan that makes sense you know i we all know that the plan was coupled with a call to charge drug dealers with the death penalty which i didn't think would be real but jeff sessions wrote that memo that seems like that actually is a real thing what's your thoughts about like how this administration is dealing with the opioid crisis and what we should do I think it's consistent with everything else they're doing. They, they talk big, but then they've not followed through with anything. I've not seen them actually execute anything that they say they're going to do. They said they were going to do a $1 trillion infrastructure plan, and then they announced $200 billion, but there's not even $200 billion. Um, uh, Ivanka Trump uh, said she was going to do a family leave policy, and then there's still nothing there. And on the opioid epidemic, let's see you do actual something. Um, I think we need to certainly hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable. But remember, this administration just pushed through a tax bill that gave the pharmaceuticals, big pharma, giant tax breaks and, and, and gave them a reward in the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that were permanent at the expense of working families. So I, I'm not sure that they have the interests of everyday people uh, over the interests of big pharma. We need to hold big pharma Accountable, And then we have to work at the local level to provide the resources for community health centers and all the folks on the ground fighting this epidemic. And I, I don't see that coming out of this administration. All I see are some plans and some big talk about, uh, you know, putting drug dealers to death. But that doesn't help the family that's got someone who is in the throes of the epidemic right now who needs to be saved. And where can people go to find more about you and to follow you? Um, well, they can just look up Senator Tammy Duckworth online and you'll you'll get to it. It's uh, far more than anybody should have on the Internet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look forward to the healthy uh, birth of your child and wish you Thank all the you. success. Consider you a friend of the pod and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on, DeRay. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. And I can't wait to see you back next week. And remember to come see us in person on April 4th, the National Geographic live show. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.